0: The sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 1. In the um, NFL draft, 1998, uh, was the story of like a tale of two quarterbacks really was the, would be a good title for that one now that we look back on it. So going into the, going into the draft, there were two very highly coveted quarterbacks available and people were, teams were trading, trying to get into the top two positions to get one of these guys. Because both were like blue chip, guaranteed success with these guys. So it was thought at least. So the first pick went to the Indianapolis Colts, a guy by the name of Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning uh, lived up to the hype. He, he went on to become... Uh, you know, the career passing leader, touchdown leader at one point. I think Drew Brees and maybe even Aaron Rodgers have passed him now. Anyway, um, but, Drew, but Peyton Manning went on for a Hall of Fame career, two Super Bowls, MVP, all those great things. Ambassador for the game, a character guy. Everybody loves Peyton Manning, so he, he lived up to it. The second pick, yeah, not so much. A guy by the name of Ryan Leaf, If you're a football fan and as old as me, you might remember that name, Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf was just as highly coveted as Peyton Manning coming out of college. Gets drafted number two by the San Diego Chargers. At his first press conference, he yawns during the press conference. During the training camp, uh, had a bad attitude through the first season. uh, His teammates went to the owner of the team and said, we can't handle this guy. He went on to just be, to become the, uh, the, if you look up draft busts, the picture of Ryan Leaf should be there. His career lasted only four years, and only he spent a, uh, two seasons with the Chargers, went on to a couple more teams who ended up cutting him. Then he ended up getting in trouble with the law, drug addictions, ends up in jail, Peyton Manning answered the call and lived it out, lived up to it. Ryan Leaf didn't live up to the call. So when we look at Matthew today, chapter 10, um, and this whole chapter, chapter 10, verse, verse 1 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, is about Jesus calling his apostles, And he calls these apostles to go and minister. And in in this passage, over the next few weeks, we're going to be seeing his instructions that he gives to the apostles as he sends them out on basically what amounts to a short-term missions trip. He gives them instructions, and he also gives them warnings as a part of this. But he was calling them, calling them to go out, and telling them how to live that out. So the big idea for the message today is answering the call of Christ means living out the call of Christ. Answering the call of Christ means living out the call of Christ. We're going to see three points. Number one, a new standard for the called. Number two, a new message for the called. And number three, a warning included in the call. So starting Matthew chapter 10... Verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip, and Bartholomew. Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So on to the first point, a new standard for the called. In verse 10, we see Jesus call a specific number of people to be his apostles. And that number is important, the number 12. And for you who've maybe grown up in the church or studied the Bible, you know that number 12 is special for a very specific reason to the people of Israel. And that's because in the Old Testament, you go all the way back to the time of the patriarchs, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel were how the ancient Israel, how they governed themselves, how they decided who was going to live where, how they, even for some people, what kind of job they were going to have. If you had a bad leader come out of your tribe, all the other tribes knew it, and your tribe was now, well, have, people looked at you a little differently, and words were being spoken about you now because of that. All the tribes knew each other. All, it, was, it was how they had their distinctions, how they governed, how they were going to live as God's people in the land. It was central to their identity. So now, though, move over to Jesus' time. And it's not quite as clear. Your tribe still mattered, but it wasn't quite as clear anymore because... In between the time of the patriarchs and the time, in between the time of even the kingdom of Israel where David ruled and Solomon ruled and then you had the decline, you end up having the exile and all the people of Israel and Judah get sent off to Babylon in captivity. And then when they come back, things aren't quite as easy. It's not the kingdom that they were used to. It's not, it's not going back right away to the way that they thought it would be. Some people, if you look in the book of Nehemiah, I think it's chapter 7, some people come back, they don't even know what tribe they belong to anymore. They say they're part of Israel, but there's no records of them anymore. So all of a sudden, it's not as easy to govern the people based on tribes anymore. And as you read through the scriptures, you see that the kingdom didn't come back the way that everybody had hoped it would. Even the land wasn't known by tribes anymore. Instead, it was known by regions in Jesus' time, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So when Jesus calls the 12 apostles, he is making a clear statement, and and that's that he is ushering a new era in. This new era, this new 12 sons of Israel were going to be the basis. And this was kind of common in that time, because there were other guys who would come along and claim to be a Messiah or... Or somebody who's going to overthrow the, the government, and they would bring in followers for them as, as well. And usually it was the number 12, because they were trying to signify that, yes, we're going to establish this new kingdom for Israel. So Jesus calls 12 guys, so you can imagine being Israelites at that time, and you're, you're following Jesus. Man, this guy, he's amazing. He's, he might be the Messiah. He's at least an amazing prophet. Look at all these amazing works he's doing, and he's called 12 people to himself, 12 men to follow him, to be his new apostles who are serving with him. Yes, the kingdom is coming. The time of David and Solomon has returned. Surely this is it. But not quite, right? Jesus was establishing the basis of a new kingdom. But it wasn't like the old one. He didn't choose these men based on what tribes they were from. He didn't choose them based on their social status or based on their bloodline. He didn't even go for the most educated, the ones that you would expect. You'd expect him to go to the temple and find some great Pharisees who knew all about the Messiah and recognized who he was and that they would be the ones. That's not what he did. Instead, you look at this list of men that he called. These aren't guys that... If this this was happening in our day, you wouldn't expect these guys to be called. These are blue-collar guys. Look at the list. You've got four fishermen, at least. Some of the guys we don't even know anything else about other than their names. But he's got these four blue-collar fishermen. He's got a tax collector, who to the Jews is seen as a traitor because he works for the evil Roman government. You can imagine, um, you can imagine somebody uh, working right working in the prime minister's office. And if you if you don't like the government, you don't like the prime minister. You don't necessarily trust this guy, right? Kind of that. It's kind of like that. He's basically like a government bureaucrat. Then he calls a zealot. A zealot. A zealot. Basically, a professional protester of his own day. So in our day, what can you imagine? Parking his truck in front of Parliament Hill, maybe. And you look at this group of guys and you're like, how is that bureaucrat and that protester, how are they supposed to get along? How are they supposed to serve with Jesus like this? Jesus, and if you're in that day and you're in the crowds following him, you're like, Jesus, really? You want these guys? These uneducated, foolish men? And Jesus says, yes. These are my guys. Jesus does want guys like this. He still does. Jesus doesn't just go after the popular or the rich or the famous or the ones who have, have come from you know, long lines of success or long lines of wealth. That is not who he goes for. Look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul writes this. He's talking about the kind of people that are following Jesus, the kind of people that Jesus is calling. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? So back then it was, it was um, popular to in, these, in these cities, you would have these debates that would happen in the town center, and crowds would come, and you'd get these famous guys who would debate things. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Then 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, Not many were of noble birth. And then a little further down the passage in verse 30, Paul writes, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So, there's a new standard for those being called into service with Jesus. It's not all of those things that the world thinks are important, but it's faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah? That's the standard. Not bloodline, not political allegiance, not your past, not on outward appearances, not on education. Do you believe in Jesus and are you ready to live for him? That's the standard. Not all those other things. I've actually even heard people in this church say, well, you know, I'm I'm just not educated enough to be involved in this ministry or that ministry. And I know there's a lot of people that didn't even finish high school in our church. But that's not a standard to go by to determine if you're going to serve Jesus in his church. Or if you're going to be a part of missions and going out and reaching others with the gospel. That is not a factor. What's the factor? Do you love Jesus? And are you ready to go and tell others about him and live for him? Don't allow past doubts about yourself or your education or even language barriers to stop you from taking part in ministry or the ministries that we do here in our church. Who knows what God will do in and through you? Look at the Apostle Paul. Would he have thought that God would work in and through him as a Christian when he was out arresting and having Christians jailed and murdered? Goodness, if he can work through a guy like that, if, if he can work through these misfits that Jesus chose to be his apostles, if he, chose to, if he can work through foolish guys like that, he can work through you. If you see yourself as foolish, actually, then you're actually in the perfect place to get into ministry. Let's go on to the next point. A new message for the called. Continuing Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, "'Go nowhere among the Gentiles "'and enter no town of the Samaritans, "'but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, "'and proclaim as you go, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven is at hand. "'Heal the sick, raise the dead, "'cleanse lepers, cast out demons.'" You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So Jesus sends out the 12 in ministry. And in particular, here we see a set of instructions for them on this specific mission, this short-term mission strip that he's sending them out to or on, into Israel, into the towns of Israel. And he says he's given them authority for this trip, to cast out demons, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, to back up the message that he has given them, which is to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He tells them not to bring all this extra stuff. Don't burden themselves with you know, a massive backpack that has all these things in it, or, you know, a belt full of stuff, or I don't know if they were like Batman back then or, or what, but not, not to carry all this extra stuff with you because this was going to be a short trip, and the people whom they were going to go and minister to were to care for them. The people who they were ministering to were to provide. So no, this, this, what we see in this text here isn't a prescription for all missionaries for all time. This is for the trip that Jesus is sending these men on in this specific instance, because later on, if you read in the Gospels, you'll see that he actually tells them to bring stuff along. He tells them to carry a sword even when they're to go out. So looking at this text, don't take this as a prescription for all of ministry for all time. This was for this short-term mission trip that he's sending these apostles on now. And the purpose of this trip is to go to the lost sheep of Israel. People who were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. People who knew of the prophecies of the Messiah to come. That's who he was to go to, or who they were to go to. And to proclaim to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And back that up with the same works that Jesus was doing, so that they would know these guys are with Jesus. And we can believe in Jesus, and Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. So when Jesus talks of shaking the dust off their feet too, or or if a house is unworthy to let your peace return to you, he's essentially saying that they should recognize who they are and that and the message they're bringing. And if these towns don't recognize them, and they don't believe the message they're bringing, then to just move on, we got to get we got to get to the next town with all of their history and all their culture and all the richness of being a part of the family of God, these towns should know. They should recognize this. The people of Israel should see this and hear it and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that the kingdom of God is being inaugurated in their day. But if they don't, if these towns don't, then the apostles are too... Shake the dust off their feet. Don't worry about it. Move on to the next town. As people sent out by Jesus, the apostles' call was to be faithful to the message that Jesus had given them and faithful to the call. How the people respond isn't up to the messenger, how the people respond is actually up to the one who sends. So this is one reason um, I think that people in our day hold back when it comes to going out, uh, whether that's on a short-term mission trip or, uh, or, or becoming missionaries or even sharing the gospel with their neighbors or in their workplace. This is one reason why they don't want to do that because they're, they're concerned about the outcome. Well, what if they don't believe? What if they don't respond the way that I want them to? What, what if they reject me? What if this... What if I share the gospel with them and they don't want to be my friend anymore because I've shared the gospel with them or they don't even want to work with me anymore? What What if I'm explicit about what I believe in sharing it at my workplace and I lose my job because of it? So the same thing that Jesus said to his apostles here, shake the dust off and move on. The response of people isn't up to us. Now, that doesn't mean we go and we just bash them over the head with a Bible, but we go, we go to them in, with the truth in love. We go to them in the grace of Christ, in the peace of Christ. Yes, we try to befriend them. Yes, we, we don't look to sever relationships, but we go with the message of the gospel and and we share that in grace and love and we, we leave the outcome, their response, whether they believe or not, we leave that to God. We leave that to the Holy Spirit to be working on their hearts. So yes, we present the gospel in a truthful, winsome way, in a way that is sensitive, in a, in a way that understands where that person is coming from. We go, right, like the way the Apostle Paul, if you think uh, in the book of Acts where he goes to... Mars Hill, it's called, or the the Areopagus, and he's speaking to all of the people there. He looks around and he sees all these statues to these different gods. And there's one statue that says, to the unknown God, because the Greeks, they're just trying to cover their bases. He says, listen, you believe in this unknown God? I'm here to tell you exactly who that is. And his name is Jesus. So he comes to them in a way that they understand. So this is important in terms of sharing the gospel, But he doesn't shy away from the truth of it either. And he shares with them exactly who Jesus is and who the one true and living God is. And he leaves the results up to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who turns hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes people. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens people's ears and eyes and hearts to understanding who Christ is and the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the change. Not us. We're simply tools. So if someone ever calls you a tool, say, yeah, I know. And, and the Holy Spirit uses the message of the gospel through fallible messengers that he calls In other words, when we bring the message of God's grace and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit uses us as his instruments to open the ears of others. But it's him who's doing the work. And God's plan through Jesus was to first go to the nation of Israel, but then after his death and resurrection and ascension, to establish a people for himself from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's how we got here today. How? Through the means of flawed human beings spreading the gospel to each other, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So faithful messengers have done this for the past 2,000 years. They've gone and they've spread the gospel, trusting in God to bring about the results. This is why we worship him like we have this morning already. This is why the church gathers throughout the world on a weekly basis because we have been the recipients of that amazing good news through faithful messengers throughout the past 2,000 years. And now churches are called to go out themselves, to continue spreading that gospel. This is why we send out missionaries like the ones that we prayed for earlier, uh, sending missionaries to locally to, through places like the Friendship Center or through... Uh, ministries like Jason and Vanessa Workington are in with AIA or overseas back to Jerusalem through people like Stefan and Letitia Bergen. We got to keep the message going. We got to keep spreading the good news. And the message hasn't changed. The kingdom of heaven is at hand in Jesus. So the question that we have to answer, every one of us, Are you ready to be a laborer in the harvest? Are you ready to be a laborer in the harvest? Are you ready to go out with this good news? That God loves sinners. That God loves the foolish. That God has sent his son to live a perfect life and to actually die as the perfect sacrifice in your place. And that he rose again to new life, promising the forgiveness of sins and and a resurrection for all who will believe in him to eternal life. In a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more destruction, no more war, no more mental illness, no more suicide. This is the good news. The kingdom of of heaven is at hand in Jesus, and in Him, eternity promises to be better. And that's the news that we're called to bring to our neighbors and to the nations. And with that good news, though, also comes a warning. So, point number three a warning included in the call the last verse we'll look at from this passage today, Matthew 10, 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So rejecting the good news of the kingdom of Christ has serious consequences. Jesus says it will be worse for those than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you know the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know your Bible, or I think it's even somewhat of a well-known story throughout our culture, basically you find the whole story all the way back in Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, in short, Sodom and Gomorrah was a city known for its rampant sinfulness. In particular, Scripture sh- talks about the sexual immorality that happened within the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were proud of it. They were proud of the way they lived. Sexual sin in particular is was, was what you see in those passages, and the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great. That's what God says in, in that passage if you read. It says that the Lord said that the outcry was great and the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah was great. And so he was going to destroy them. So Genesis 19, 24, and 25 says how he destroyed them. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Everything in those cities destroyed in seconds. If you have the streaming service Disney+, Plus, there is actually a National Geographic special on there called Buried Secrets of the Bible. And this one episode, the, the host decides he's going to go and find out what is the truth about Sodom and Gomorrah. So you know, often when documentaries try to do something like this, they, they find a way to disprove it, right? Well, this one's opposite. All he does is find more evidence that proves it. Uh, the archaeologist that he, that he talks with, who has ex- excavated this one site, which they believe was Sodom and Gomorrah, he's been, he's been excavating there for over 20 years, and he says that the stuff that they're finding there is evidence that the area went through the most violent destruction of anything that has ever been seen on earth. Not just a fire, okay? So it's not like when you, you look at history and you hear that, uh, Toronto burned or Chicago had a great fire. It wasn't, it's not just a fire, but this is something where it was so hot, the only thing known to man that can cause that kind of heat is an atomic blast. Pottery melted there and turned into glass. Temperature, he says, actually hotter than the sun, which this archaeologist believes was created by a meteor blast. And a blast like that, if it happened, uh, would, would vaporize anybody living. This is the evidence that they have at the site that they believe is Sodom and Gomorrah. So imagine the terror of that. And as bad as that sounds, Jesus says it will be worse for those who reject him. Guys, listen, God, when it comes to judgment, God's for real. Hell is real. But if you look at the world and you look at the rampant sinfulness that's going on in our world, you can also see that God is gracious and patient And long suffering as he calls us out, or he calls us to go out and spread his message of good news through Jesus Christ. Through the book of Acts, we see thousands of people that turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. Even people who likely rejected the message that the apostles brought to them on this trip. Because if you think of Peter's Sermon in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people that day become Christians, just from that one sermon and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit going out. And then that message continued, right, through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if you've rejected Jesus at some point in your life, you think you're too far gone. You're not. You can still turn back and put your faith in Christ. The foundation of a life that is called to follow Christ is a daily walk of belief and repentance. No matter how far you've gone, you can turn from your sin and turn back to Jesus today. It's not too late. You might be thinking of all the things that you've done. yeah, yeah, I know. I, I get it. I've done things too. But it's not too late. You might think that there's all these opportunities to reconcile with people that have passed, because maybe those people have even passed away, or you have no way of contact them, contacting them anymore, and you're like, "Nobody will ever forgive me. God can't forgive me." It's not true. You can turn. You can put your faith in Jesus and you can walk with him. Like we just sang, Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on him. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, even if you've looked up to the sky and cursed God himself, you can turn back Cast all your burdens on him. Confess all your sin to him and he will forgive you. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Or if you have family and friends who appear to have rejected Jesus and appear to be too far gone, continue to pray for them. When you have the opportunities, continue to winsomely share the gospel with them, meeting them where they're at. As long as they have breath in their lungs, the Lord of the harvest can save them. Jesus is calling. answer the call, and live for him. Will you pray with me? Lord, I can't uh, praise you enough for this amazing truth, Lord, that that you don't look at what the world looks at in terms of uh, what's important people who we would look at and, and say are, are, uh, we wouldn't want to associate with, Lord, you call them to serve you and you associate with them. So Lord, I pray you would humble us. Humble us to look across uh, the aisles that we have or the chasms that we have between uh, other, other whether they're neighbors or family members or... Help us to look at them and to humble ourselves and to be willing to go to them in truth and love and grace. Meet them where they're at and to trust the results to you. And Lord, for those of us who are wandering away from you and are maybe far from you, I pray by your spirit that you would work on their hearts this morning, that you would soften their hearts to you. Like that old song we sing, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is calling. Lord, would you softly, tenderly approach those who are far from you or who are hurting, who maybe even are angry with you, and and would they hear your voice come back to you. So, Lord, we trust you. We trust you with our church. We trust you with all of our evangelistic efforts. We trust you with our very lives and our, our own daily walk. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, convict us of our sins and lead us to continued belief and repentance daily. As we go to your table, Lord, I thank you that you sent your son for us. Father, that you didn't look at humanity and think that they've sinned and they're too far gone, but you decided not to cast us off. You decided not to let sin overcome your plan. But you sent your son. You sent your son to live a sinless life in perfect obedience to all of your laws. You sent your son to be that perfect sacrifice for us. Lord, animal blood doesn't cover it. We needed the the death of a perfect human. Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, giving himself, dying for us is what we needed. And Lord, I thank you that his work doesn't just cover those who came after him, but it covers those who went before him. So Lord, when we see sins of guys like Abraham and Moses and David, that the blood of Jesus covers those. And that you are faithful and just to forgive them and to forgive us. So Lord, as we go to your table, would you... Bring to our own minds and hearts, bring, bring us things that, that we need to confess to you, and I pray that we would do that now. Hard feelings we have, people that have wronged us, Lord, help us to forgive them. And may we go to the table together as a family, as the family of God, those who love you and have put their faith in you, Lord Jesus. Help help this to be a celebration of who you are and all you've done. So Lord, bless us as we come to your table and as we sing more songs and conclude the service. In your name, Jesus, amen.